All righty. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we do pray, Lord, that you would bless us tonight, Lord. We pray you'd bring us closer to you, Lord, that we could enter into that abundant life that you came to give us, Lord, we pray. And we pray for all those that are sick tonight and down. We pray for your mercy, Lord, that you would lift them up. Pray for your grace. Bless us, Lord, we pray. And we pray that you would just give to us tonight, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last time I was up here, we finished First John, the book all about love, how we should walk in love towards one another. And what we're going to talk about tonight is the same thing, walking in love towards one another, being of the same mind. Paul constantly was talking about the unity that should be among believers. He, he, was, he would say, be of one mind. It doesn't mean we have to think the same thing. It doesn't mean that we are the same. We're all individuals. But be of one mind, have one purpose, to do the will of God, to desire that God's will be done, to obey God in our relationships with one another. And so would you please turn to Romans chapter 14. This is the chapter that kind of set me free when I first got saved because I felt that God was calling me to enter in. But I was struggling, I was wrestling with him, because I had a misconception of what the Christian life was. I, I was thinking that it was God constantly telling us to do things that we didn't want to do, and constantly telling us not to do things that we always want to do. I didn't realize that the Christian life is indeed life. When Jesus said, I came to give you life and that more abundantly, that he wasn't kidding. That the life that Jesus gives us, following Jesus and being with him, is abundant life. Life and that more abundant. There is nothing like it. So Romans chapter 14 verse 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Receive one another, love one another. Be of the same mind, wanting the will of God to be done in every relationship. At this time, I never wanted to be a Christian. I mean, did any of you ever wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, I think today I'll become a Christian? Not only did I not want to be a Christian, I didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. For me, Christianity was death. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll become a Christian today. First of all, it's impossible. You can wake up and say, I think I'll become a Buddhist today, and that can happen. Or I think I'll become a Muslim today, and that can happen. Or a Mormon. But a Christianity, true conversion to Christianity, involves a supernatural miracle that's akin to rising, raising the dead. It's not us. It's the Lord that brings us in. I definitely did not want to be a Christian. It went against everything that I was and went against everything that I believed. I came to realize, and I think everybody does when the Lord is calling, that, that becoming a Christian meant, that coming in, meant coming into agreement with God that everything about me is wrong. And that's a, that's a blow to the flesh. It's very traumatic. I didn't want to have anything to do with the church. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to be around 
anybody who went to church. I didn't want to be around Christians. You know, those weirdos go around saying praise the Lord all the time, hugging. I still haven't gotten over the hugging part. I didn't want to have anything to do with church. I didn't want to go to church. The whole thing, to be honest with you, was repulsive to me. The thought of becoming a Christian meant the end of life. No more fun, no more good times. It was like that uh, I, I was in total agreement with the lyrics to that old song. said, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And I definitely, at that time, would rather have laughed with the sinners than cry with the saints. my idea of Christianity, I would watch television and see these TV evangelists, and that was sort of my idea of Christianity, you know, like Jim Baker and uh, all these TV evangelists, and I thought, man, I do not want to have anything to do with those people. I do not want to become one of those. The thought of becoming a Christian, to be honest with you, was sickening. My idea of Christianity and the, the whole idea, the whole Christian life was the verse in James, where it says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I did not want to mourn or weep, and I didn't want my laughter to be turned to mourning, and I didn't want my joy to be turned to gloom. And so I didn't want to have anything to do. I was around, and that thing was, the weird thing was, that the Lord was surrounding me with Christians all the time at work. Um, I went, remember I went to visit some friends. I hadn't seen them in a long time. There were a bunch of old hippies that lived way out in the country, and I go out there, and they had, they had gotten saved. They're all Christians. My immediate impulse was just to turn around and run, but and it was an ambush because they knew I was coming, and so they were having a Bible study, and so I sat and listened to it. And the weird thing was, I didn't. I was sweating bullets, but the weird thing was, I knew that everything they were saying was true. Didn't want to know it, but I knew everything they were saying was true. And so when I left, they loaded me up with tracks. And I went home, and Joanne was home. And I put the tracks on the table, and I said, look what these guys are into. And I went to bed. Joanne stayed up all night reading the tracks, and she got saved that night. And her sister was living with us at that time, and her sister got saved. So now there's two of them in the house. And old friends of mine who had gotten saved were going to this church out in Victor, Maranatha, and they kept trying to get me to go to church. They were going to this weird little church that was in an old depot out in Victor. You know, the pastor was Bill Gallatin, and I was sure this was a cult that they were involved in. And so, and they kept calling me and inviting me into church, and I told Joanne, if anyone calls from that church, I'm not here. Screen my calls. But one day the phone rang, and I answered it by mistake, and the voice on the other end said, hey, praise the Lord. And I thought, oh. Immediately, I started feeling ill. And there was an old friend of mine who had gotten saved, and he talked me into coming to church. He says, there's this new fellowship out in Greece. They're meeting in the Greece Grange Hall. So, you know, why don't you come and check it out? And so, for some reason, I, went, I said, okay, I'll go, and I went. I had my head hanging out the window the whole way. He invited me to this church. The pastor was uh, Paul Colosi. And when I walked in, he was teaching Romans 14. And that's when my aversion to Christianity fled that night. Because I began to realize the truth, that a life of faith is not restrictive and it's not oppressive. Faith is freedom. It's life. 
It's not restricted life, it's abundant life. So Paul says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. I think that people who Paul refers to as weak in the faith tend to be a little on the legalistic side. We used to have this guy who came over to our house all the time, and for some reason he went into our refrigerator, and Joanne, who was a gourmet cook, sometimes she cooks and she uses wine in her cooking, and he went in, in the, into the refrigerator and he saw a bottle of wine in the refrigerator. He'd probably been in there for like a year, and he came out into the living room with this shocked look on his face, and he said, why do you have a bottle of wine in your refrigerator? And I said, because I'm a raging alcoholic. I wasn't, but this guy was driving me nuts. You know, it's interesting. I was looking up something, some old coins. The first coin that was put into circulation after the Revolutionary War, when this country became a nation, the first coin had an inscription on it, and it wasn't in God we trust. Believe it or not, the first coin that was in circulation in this country, the inscription on the bottom was, mind your own business. Man, you got to hand it to the Founding Fathers. If you want a rule, that's a good one. It's not that we don't care about people around us. We hope for the best for those around us. But the best thing we can do for one another is to pray rather than dispute over doubtful things, to pray for each other. And our Lord will either correct the person we're praying for or, or more likely he'll correct us. It's amazing what happens when we pray. Receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things. The overall message in this chapter, I think, is in Romans 15, verse 7. It says, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So you have to ask, how has Christ received us? Just as we are. It's like that song that we sing, Come just as you are. He has received us just as we are, and he covers us with his righteousness. And then he works in us to sanctify us so that we can experience that abundant life that he has for us. Being with Jesus, there is nothing better than that. You know, it's why Peter and James and John left their boats. It's why Matthew left the tax office and all the money. Because there was nothing better in this world, in this universe, than being with Jesus. So how do we receive each other? the same way that Christ received us, just as we are, knowing that in each one of us, he has promised to complete the good work that he started in us. We receive each other just as we are, knowing that God will do the work in each one of us. I remember uh, Jeff, a long time ago, asked, asked me to pray about becoming an elder. And I went home and I said to Joanne, Jeff asked me to pray about becoming an elder. And she said, what? And... Uh, but the thing was that back then, I was still smoking. And so, you know, people who smoke don't think that anybody knows. But you can smell them a mile away. And so I was going to elders meeting and stinking up the room. But the weird thing is, Jeff never said a word about it. Never said a word about it. Because he knew that the Lord would deal with it. And he did. He delivered me. We receive each other just as we are. We receive each other for one reason, in spite of everything else. We accept each other on the basis of one thing, dependence in Jesus Christ. We live by faith. You know, what does it mean to live by faith? We tell the kids in Sunday school that the best 
the abundant life, the most exciting. You can have your, a dull life or you can have, your life can be an adventure. If you want your life to be dull and boring, don't read the Bible, don't follow Christ, don't obey God. If you want your life to be an adventure, read the word of God and follow Christ. To live a life of faith is the most exciting way to live. It means you let God take care of you. Faith. You're my brother and sister because we've been born into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, receive one another, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Jesus told the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. It's amazing how people waste time disputing over things that have nothing to do with the word of God. You know, people say, well, how do you baptize in your church? Do you dunk? Or do, you, or, or do you dunk or do you sprinkle? And if you sprinkle, do you do it just once or do you do it three times? If you dunk, do you dunk people forwards or backwards? Do you use cold water or warm water? You know, disputing over doubtful, silly things. You know, is there anybody in your fellowship who has secular music on their playlist? Disputing, doubtful things, anything that isn't specifically addressed in the scriptures. Verse 2, it says, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. All this happened because of the prevalence of idolatry, that the Christians were being called out of idolatrous worship and coming in to believe in Christ. But that idolatry was still there. I'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. Paul had to address this because idolatry was so prevalent in these, in these areas that he was starting churches and people were coming out of that idolatrous worship. In verse 1 it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging symbol. And although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You ever know anybody who had a lot of knowledge, a ton of knowledge, but didn't have the love of God? There's no real fellowship with somebody like that. But they're not, it's not a fun thing to be around folks like that. You know, they can quote chapter and verse, they have a lot of knowledge, they have a scripture for every occasion, but they don't know or have the love of God. There's no real fellowship. Knowledge is a great thing, depending on what you know and how you use it. There's a sign on the art gallery downtown that says, knowledge is power. And it's true, unless you happen to be eating from a certain tree in Eden. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 2, Peter talks about a certain kind of knowledge. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So there is knowledge. The knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, which brings grace and it brings peace into a life. The knowledge of God doesn't produce hypocrites. It produces humility and people who are salt and light. It produces people who are a joy to be around. It's a joy to be around people who know God, who know the love of God.
Knowledge has the potential to produce pride and arrogance in people, but love edifies. Love builds up, it delivers, it saves. Love preaches the good news to the poor. Love heals the brokenhearted. Love sets at liberty those who are oppressed. In verse 2 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You may know it, but you don't know it yet like you should know it. You know, how can we be so confident in what we think we know when, as Paul said, now we see through a glass darkly? In Ephesians, Paul said, urged us and admonished us to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How can we know the extent of something that is beyond knowledge? But if we, by the mercy of God, are given insight into the love of God, it should produce the utmost humility. You know, we need to pray for our kids, church kids. You see it in Sunday school. There are kids in church who are more Bible literate than most adults. They have a ton of Bible knowledge, and we need to pray that it goes from their head into their hearts. Verse 3 in 1 Corinthians, it says, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You know, what's more important, a ton of knowledge, knowing a lot of stuff, or being known by God? The scariest words in the Bible are where Jesus is going to look at some people and say, I never knew you. But Lord, I memorized verses. Go ahead, ask me any question. I can kill in Bible trivia. I got all this knowledge. And Jesus would say, I never knew you. That's what's so cool about being around new Christians. They don't know anything. And they don't profess to know anything. But they know one thing. Jesus loves me, this I know. They have that first love that the Bible talks about. And may that flame never die. In Matthew 22, verse 35, it says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God, love others, because you know the love of God. Laws keep us safe if they're followed. But rules can never produce the righteousness that God requires. Only knowing the love of God. <coughs> Excuse me. I heard someone tell a story about something that happened in their church. You know how kids like to collect things? I think, you know, I don't know if they're still popular, but I think currently it's like Pokemon cards. I know when I was driving school bus, I, the kids would beg, borrow, and steal to get the right Pokemon cards. I constantly had to be watching them because the older kids were always trying to jip the younger kids out of their cards. But they collected these things, and kids would have stacks of them. When I was young, it was this thing called monster cards. It was these cards with all these gross-looking monsters on it and a piece of really hard bubble gum in it, which I wish I still had because, of course, they're worth money now. And so this kid, but in between those two things, kids were collecting years back these things called pogs. I don't know if anybody remembers those things. They were cards, and there was a game associated with them. I can't remember what it was, but some of the pogs had these really grotesque-looking monsters on them. And this kid had a huge collection of these pogs, 
and he made the fatal mistake of bringing them to church. So he's bringing them to church and he's showing his friends these, pot, these, these cards with these monsters on them. And one of the ladies at church saw them and she went over and told his mother and said, how can you allow your son to have those things? They're demonic. You know, those things are just getting kids ready for demonic activities so that when it happens, they'll just take it for granted. You know, why do you let your kids have those things? And the mom was like, oh, no. And so she, they went over and they took the pogs away from the, the cards away from the kid, started going through them and throwing them in the trash as they went through them. And the kid was standing there and he was turning red. He was trying not to cry because his, his collection was being decimated. And he, plus he was so angry that they were doing this. And one of the elders saw this happening and he went over and he talked to the mom and then he went over and he fished the cards out of the garbage and he came over and he went up to the kid and he said, kid, or I don't know what the kid's name was, but he said, kid, in Christianity, there are no rules. And he gave the cards back to the kid and the kid was shocked. He was so happy that he got his collection back, but what really got him was that statement that that guy made. In Christianity, there are no rules. And he never got over that. He couldn't figure it out. And he kept thinking about it, thinking about it. Because he was like, you know, what do you mean there are no rules? I'm a church kid. That's all I know are rules. You know, don't, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't watch that. Don't listen to that. All I got is rules. And if I follow the rules, then God will like me and I'll be accepted by the church. And everybody will pat me on the head and tell me I'm a good kid. You know, what do you mean there are no rules? All I have are rules. But then later on, that kid got saved. Because he must have discovered that it's not about all the thou shalt nots. Even though all the thou shalt nots keep people from destroying themselves and others. But it's not about the rules. This kid must have discovered it's about the love of God. And only about the love of God. And he came to Christ. Paul said the love of Christ constrains us. It's a personal, individual relationship with the living God. <clears throat> it's joy unspeakable and full of glory, being with Jesus. Nothing compares to it. John would say, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's being brought to a place where that fellowship is more precious than anything, and that I would rather die than be separated from that fellowship. It's the love of God. Law or rules can sustain life for a time, but Jesus gives us eternal life. Not only quantity of life, the fact that a million years from now we're still going to be alive doing something. Not only quantity of life, but quality of life. Eternal life means a quality of life. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to idol, to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. You know, they were previously, before they became Christians, were so immersed in idolatry that they still think that there's some, 
some of these Christians were still thinking that there was some life or reality in that piece of wood or stone that was worshipped. Back in Romans 14, verse 3. says, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. God has received us, so we should refrain from judging each other. You know, it's like somebody goes into the idol's temple and gets some meat, and because back then they would worship their idols and offer up meat sacrifices, and whatever was left they would sell in the meat market. And so some Christians were able to eat this meat, buy it, and eat it with no problem with conscience at all. But some, because they were conscious of the idol, wouldn't eat it. It's like somebody goes in and gets a hamburger from the idol temple and offers it to another Christian, and that Christian says, I can't, I don't want to, that meat has been sacrificed to an idol, so I don't want to touch it. And that person says, boy, that guy won't even eat a hamburger because of that stupid idol. I can't stand those people. And the other guy says, man, that guy calls himself a Christian and he goes into an idol's temple and comes out with a cheeseburger and they, that they use to worship that idol. Can he really be a Christian? And Paul says, avoid this. Verse 4, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. That person that you perceive to be at fault or doing something that you believe is wrong in your mind, that person you perceive to be at fault, he will have to stand before God and give an account, as will you. And he will be made to stand, as Paul said, for God is able to make him stand. So who are we to judge another person's servant? For God is able and will make us all stand. He will complete the good work that he has started in us. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. There are some believers that I know who observe holy days. Some say, some Christians, that some believers I know believe that we should worship on Saturdays. Others say, no, the Sabbath for Christians is on Sunday. Paul says, be convinced in your own mind. You know, shouldn't every day be a Sabbath day for us? Not that we don't work during the week, but that every day we have entered into his rest. Cease from trying to get God to love us by our works and rest in the completed work of Christ. Paul says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Why are we engaging in whatever we're doing or why are we not engaging in a particular activity? Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you can do that, if you're engaging in something, if you're doing something, and you can do it to the glory of God and give thanks to God, then happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. If you can't do that, then abstain. Paul goes on, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. 
and he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, let everything that we do be an act of worship, bringing joy. And everything that we don't do be an act of worship, bringing joy. Verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. We're all responsible for ourselves and our relationship with the Lord. You know, it's true, we can judge right from wrong because we have the word of God, and right and wrong is spelled out in God's word. But I'm not going to judge another person because when I stand before the Bemis seat judgment, I'm going to need all the mercy I can get. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You know, in thinking about this, judging and not putting a stumbling block, I remember one time I dragged Joanne to the movies. And to get Joanne to go to a movie, you have to drag her there. And so I dragged her to the movies, and it was one of those multiplex theaters. And one of the movies that was showing was a Christian movie, one of the Christian movies. I can't remember which one it was. And one of the other movies that was showing was Batman. Of course, being the spiritual giant that I am, I was there to see Batman. And as I'm walking in, we see this couple that we knew, that we fellowshiped with at church, and we were involved in ministry with them. And we see them, and we're so glad to see each other, and we're hugging and everything. And, and uh, the wife said, oh, this is great. We can sit together, thinking mistakenly that I was there to see the Christian movie. And I said to her, well, actually, we're here to see Batman. And her husband said, can I go with you guys? <laughs> and she gave me that look like, thanks a lot. But they knew us. They, were, they are mature Christians, and they are seasoned Christians, and they know I'm an idiot. So... They didn't judge us, and we didn't stumble them. But I'm sure that at the end of the night, they were more edified than we were. Verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself. This is a very heavy statement from Paul, considering Leviticus and all the dietary laws that Moses gave, that God that Moses called certain, certain foods unclean and certain foods clean. You know, while the diet, dietary laws calling certain foods unclean, there never was anything unclean of itself. But God was introducing a truth through his people that didn't come naturally to a fallen world. And that truth was the concept of clean and unclean, the concept of light and darkness, and of that judgment from God, that there were certain activities that enhance life and there are certain activities that take away life. 
Paul goes on, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean, our conscience. Don't do anything to mar your conscience and take away your peace. Even if something is, doubt, is a doubtful thing, are we confident that it has God's approval that we engage in it? Verse 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Romans 15.1 says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Do not let what you enjoy be spoken of as evil. Keep it to yourself, between you and God. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, are we serving ourselves or are we serving Christ? Verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. You know, there is a satanic Bible. There actually is one. And the main most important commandment in that Bible is do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt. Do whatever brings you pleasure. And if people don't like it or if it affects people in a negative way, too bad. Don't let anybody else's conscience disturb your seeking pleasure. Galatians 2.20 says, that's what the Satanic Bible says. The Word of God says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Live for Jesus. This is true fulfillment. You know, the world is looking for a fulfilling life, and they're so missing out on it, you know, so blinded. The only fulfillment, the only adventure in life is following Christ, being with Jesus. Nothing can compare to that. Verse 22 says, do you have faith? Do you, you know, in other words, do you know the perfect will of God for you as an individual? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not done in the assurance of the full approval of God is sin. It's missing out. It's forfeiting blessings that God has for our lives. Nothing better. You know, there's an old song that said, give me the Christian life. There is nothing better than following, than being with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love, for your word, and for the life that you've given us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would 
truly do what your word says. We pray you'd fill us with your spirit, Lord, that that fruit would be in us, that we would truly love one another, not judge one another, but pray for one another, hope for the best for one another, and just love each other, Lord, we pray. That would be a witness, that we'd be of one mind, Lord, only desiring to obey you in every relationship and in every way. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us, and we thank you that you promised to complete the good work that you started in each one of us, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.